Hello, DER Task Force, and welcome to Episode 5, DERs in Wholesale Markets. Like most of our episodes, this conversation was inspired by a task force member's presentation at a previous meetup. In January of 2020, Ben Karen of E3 provided the community with a history of DER participation in power markets over the past decade. Throughout his career at FERC, National Grid, Sunrun, and now E3, he saw this evolution firsthand and therefore was able to offer a really compelling view of what's happened and what may be on the horizon. In this episode, we tried to build on everything Ben taught us with a focus on today's DER monetization strategies, historical wholesale market design implications, and the future of DER's participation. We also sprinkle in a little age-old debate about energy versus capacity markets for good measure. If you'd like to see Ben's presentation from earlier this year, be sure to check out our content library on DERtaskforce.com. All right, enjoy. Hello to our listeners. Welcome to the DER Task Force podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, James McGinnis and Duncan Campbell, and I'm Colleen Metalitza. Uh, we're really excited to dive into the world of DERs in the wholesale markets today. We're going to talk about energy versus capacity markets, who should have control of the distribution grid, and more. So with that, I'm going to give it to James to intro us on the topic. So... Residential and commercial pay for the infrastructure differently, but in both categories, you know, more than half your bill goes towards paying for how much energy you consume on usually like a per unit of energy, you know, dollars or cents per kilowatt hour basis. And the way that you get to that is through wholesale markets. There's actually a lot to unpack here because when you install behind the meter, there's actually this large wholesale market where like coal plants and nuclear plants and hydro plants are bidding their power in DERs actually affect that you know through just basic like economic supply and demand of a commodity way so we wanted to use this episode to basically start unpacking how DERs are currently compensated through the wholesale market and uh, the different forms of wholesale markets, energy markets, and capacity markets, and starting with where we are in the market today, but then using that to, you know, maybe some of the major challenges. If we made some changes around wholesale markets, uh, DERs would be compensated a lot better, more projects would happen, all that good stuff. I think maybe the, the best place to start is, is actually just kind of like where we are in the market today. So basically, in the 90s and early 2000s, the United States, at large and varying degrees based on the state and territory, went through a period of deregulation in which vertically owned utilities, which owned the generation, the poles and wires, and the customer um, sort of facing aspect of electricity generation became more just poles and wires and customer facing and the generation owning in a lot of places became something that was done competitively with the idea being that if you brought competition into generation you could reduce costs for everyone right and so yeah what we'll be talking about today is these deregulated markets where where we're at you know it started around late 90s with ERCOD and now I think there's 18 markets that are deregulated 18 different states at least um, and Basically, big power plants say, hey, I can generate X and I'd be willing to get paid uh, Y for it. 
and they're constantly bidding into these markets. And then on the other side of the market, uh, utilities and what are called retail electricity providers are saying, hey, I have this customer, this demand base, uh, and they're, uh, we need to buy this amount of power. And the independent system operator, or ISO, sits in the middle of generators and load serving entities and matches supply and demand. And that's done through sort of like an auction. They call it a bid stack. So if I'm a coal plant, I bid it my marginal cost of operating. And the ISO will say, okay, on the demand side of the market, we have 20 gigawatts of, you know, people just need this power right now. And, and that's sort of fixed, right? <laughs> like just the demand is the demand. So they line up the cheapest 20 gigawatts on the supply side of the market and then they settle under that. So basically, if I'm a coal plant, I bid at, at, at $3 or $30 a megawatt hour, uh, and the 20th gigawatt of power that we need to, to match supply and demand bids in at, at 70, actually the whole market gets paid $70 a megawatt hour. So that's how you get like two cents a kilowatt hour, five cents a kilowatt hour, and basically what retail electricity providers or you know utilities still do this do for their customer is they promise a fixed price like say six cents per kilowatt hour seven cents per kilowatt hour for the whole year or, or for three years often 12 to 36 months and prices are going up and down every day on 15 minute intervals and it's the load serving entity's job to hedge like they're big financial firms basically that they promise a customer seven cents and they're trying to get it for five cents and they keep the spread. Yep. So, so they manage risk for customers. And that, that's like basically how energy markets work. It's actually just, it's a commodity market, you know, like anything else, there's energy traders, any, anything else you'd see in like a normal commodity market. Exactly. And so I think um, one of the things we'll get into in a bit, but is worth sort of noting is that every ISO has an energy market and energy markets are usually both bid in day ahead and then real time. So you have sort of two markets to allow for to the point of the 20 gigawatt hour or 20 gig, or gigawatts is you know that the day ahead it should be around 20, but then during the day it might fluctuate a little bit. So you create sort of an additional market to help handle that day-to-day -day time period. Wait, I have a quick question on something we covered. I, I've always been a bit confused. There are some states that deregulated where there's a wholesale energy market but there is not customer choice. There are no reps. So like in California, there, you know, m most generation is not utility owned, although there's a, there are some utility owned plants still, but as an end user, you cannot sign up for a third right. party so supplier. CCAs withstanding, that's like a new development, but like you, you can't sign up with direct energy. You still just get your PG and E bill, even though there's a wholesale market. When you talk about wholesale markets, you're talking about generators bidding into the ISO and, and getting paid for the power they're producing. When people in the industry use the term retail, they're basically just talking about the demand side of the market because, you know, they're bidding in at wholesale prices. And then whatever the entity is, whether it's the utility or it's regulated, or it's deregulated, the customer ends up paying more because there's some, you know, you have to manage that <laughs> price fluctuation in some way. But retailers, uh, some of them are really good. I think overall, like market deregulation is seen as a very positive thing. Some markets are structured better than, than others. Basically what happened in like 2001 when, you know, everyone remembers Enron and stuff. The way the rules were written in California 
retailers were like manipulating the market. So they were ripping off customers. They were doing all sorts of shady things. But a lot of that was due to, um, you know, there's a lot of debate around this. But some people think that California didn't write the rules great. And I think there's still kind of, there's a lot of like shell shock from that still. They don't really trust reps. Or like in New York, they just mandated that if you're a, and you know, retailers are called ESCOs in New York. So if you're a an ESCO, if you can't beat, what the utility is offer offering as a supply rate to the customer, you cannot offer a supply contract. So that's a regulation that limits the players that can actually, you know, if, if I'm already paying Con Ed eight cents and direct offers me nine, they're not allowed to do that. They're, they're so, trying to prevent grandpa from signing up for, right. for a bad deal. So right. like with exactly. CCAs and in California, like on the retail side of market, there can be all sorts of regulations that limit the contracts that can be offered to customer. customers but that doesn't mean that generators like on the wholesale side of the market aren't bidding in Mm -hmm. power in a competitive right the way to think about it is that there's three levels within utility deregulation and some markets have like texas have really truly deregulated all three levels right so the generators are competing against each other and then retailers are competing against each other in a huge way in texas in a way that they really aren't in any other state and then other states have varying levels of degrees around retail competition. So, you know, Massachusetts has a decent amount of retail competition. Places like California don't. So you can be deregulated without having full deregulation. Yeah, there's varying degrees of deregulation. And one of those is capacity markets. Well, and maybe I can ask, why, why do these capacity markets even exist, I guess? But before getting into, like, the ramifications of them, I think Ben in his presentation outlined it as you know there there was this desire to put a limit on the price of energy so there's like two theses out there first everyone agrees you have to build enough transmission to meet demand on the hottest day of the year or like the when there's the most consumption but you still need enough generators to supply demand so you need like the pipes to be wide, wide enough but then you also need enough water flowing through them So Texas said, well, you know, people are going to be asking for a certain amount of power. And as there's a supply shortage, the price of power will just go up. And so enough generation will get built in order to service that. So they have a cap on the that they can pay a generator. So if you think about it, like most supply rates are around seven cents per kilowatt hour. Generally, the marginal cost of operating a power plant is like. $30 $30 a megawatt hour. So three cents. So if you think about $9,000 a megawatt hour, that's 300 X yeah. of, of what the normal, like that's think about Insanely your Uber. Expensive. When you yeah. get an Uber, like your surge pricing is two and a half X, but this is 300 X. So, um, <laughs> you usually pay $15 and it's, you know, $4,500. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so, um, in Texas, they said this is going to happen very infrequently, but, when it does, a generator can make so much money that they'll basically stay offline for like 363 days a year. But that capacity will get built. Like the ability to meet demand will, will be there. And, and the term that ISO people use is reserve margin. So that's like if the max amount of demand we expect this year to be 60 gigawatts, we want a, a reserve margin of generally it's around like 15%. 
if all the power plants were turned on at the same time, we'd have, say, 75 gigawatts of power output. Right. And the reason to have a reserve margin, again, is you don't have enough power, your forecast is a little bit off, and suddenly you have you trigger a black Now there's a black down. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, right, so that's the energy-only side. And then the sort of flip side, the reason to have a capacity market is the idea that if you don't, let's say even with a cap, you don't necessarily know how frequently you'll hit that cap. And so for generators, it could be more risky to decide to build something in advance because they don't know whether if suddenly everyone built something at the same time in the hopes of getting $9,000 a megawatt hour for, you know, six hours a year. Now there's too much and people are bidding in at their marginal costs. And so you happen to be a little bit higher marginal cost than someone and you don't get anything. So the idea with capacity markets is that you're giving people a contract up front in order to build the reserve capacity you think you need, which in theory is a more like risk averse approach to dealing with having capacity. Right. Like I think basically because energy markets are weird, we're kind of scaredy cats and are like, well, we don't really trust an energy only market. So we're just going to like get in a room with our forecasters and say, well, we think there's going to be 70 gigawatts of maximum demand this summer. So we want a 20% margin. Like we're not going to let the market just decide what the reserve margin is, right? Like we're not going to let power plant builders make bets on what they think the price spikes are going to be or anything. So we're going to pay anyone building a power plant X dollars per megawatt per year just to be there. And that's going to be like half of the market. And then the other half, we're just going to let them settle in real time on 15 minute intervals in like the same way an energy only market does. So basically these grids that have capacity markets are, they're using the energy market just to organize the daily behavior of the power plants and the capacity market to incent investment. Whereas say in Texas, which is energy only, it's using energy for both, both to dispatch daily and figure out, you know, who's doing what every day, but also to, you know, give a price signal to say that, that marginal peaker plant that we might need. Right. Exactly. And so... But once you've decided to do a capacity market, you introduce some weird things. It's like, who's making those payments to the power plants? Okay, well, it has to go into the supply rate. So that happens through capacity tax. You know, each market's different. Some of them do like multiple days of the year. But in New York, it's a 15-minute or one-hour interval of the single highest point of demand grid-wide, New York statewide. And they take a snapshot of that 15-minute interval and say, your load base was consuming X, total demand was Y, you just pay a pro rata portion into the whole capacity payment bank. And then all the money going in from the load-serving load entities gets divvied out to the generators based on that. And then that usually constitutes like 20 to 50% of the bill. I, I'm, I'm not really sure, like on a, say, $0.07 cents per kilowatt hour. And then the rest of it is just the real-time operation. And so because that capacity portion costs something, they say, we're going to have a lower price cap. It's going to be $1,000 a megawatt hour. We don't need to incentivize investment through these super high price caps. You know, we're already paying for capacity. So, you know, the generators are getting their cut. They don't need really high price caps because they're, they're already getting paid enough, right? So in, in my mind, this is just like a really bad way of pricing risk. 
like it's it's as ben put it a call option on on energy that's what the capacity market is and it's like a bunch of people in a room sitting around and being like what do we think the reserve margin should be this year and they have an auction and pgm now the the reserve margin is like 35 percent, i think which <laughs> yeah. just means rate payers are just paying because a bunch of dope sat in a room and made a bad forecast you know like the, that's actually how i feel about it the risk averse side of me is like but but don't you want the reserve margin? Texas still targets a reserve margin, right? Like when you hear their the chair of their PUC talk, like they target an 11% reserve margin. And yeah. they'll take steps to mitigate if they're ever kind of dropping below. Or This quickly gets into my earlier question then. Was it the desire to have a capacity market in some markets then prompted the lower price cap on energy? Or was it the desire to have a lower price cap on energy than required the capacity market. I think it was the like what the historically former. I think it was, it was the, it was I don't, the, I don't know like okay. exactly, you know, I, I just, I've always wondered that. Like I just, right. when, when these economists were sitting in a room somewhere, like I, I how think did we arrive the, at I think this? actually the price caps used to be higher. Like price caps have changed okay. over time and it was either like Texas's went up or in like new England's went down. Yeah. But I, I do think that it had to be that someone said, we don't know what it will be. And and you do have things like that, right? Where in Chile, they had their wholesale markets um, in one area basically collapse because they had an overproduction of solar. And solar has a $0 marginal cost once it's built. And then none of them are making any money. Um, so there are... <laughs> There are some issues with when you have no sense of how long a high price might last, maybe is the way of putting it. Um, but I think that when you have something where you have an energy only market, but it is sort of closely watched and well understood, like you have an ERCOT where there's something a little different. So I, I think my point here is like that these markets are fairly deterministic and risk can be priced through a market when things are deterministic. You know, if you're in a hurricane region in New Orleans, you can look at the historical data on how many hurricanes have blasted how many houses over how many hundreds of years. And then as an insurance company, you can come up with a sort of probabilistic approach to what are the chances this house gets ruined? And then I can price the insurance based on that. The market has to be like kind of deterministic in order for that to happen. So in the same token, you can look at the history you know, if I'm a power plant developer and I can just ask the question, like, what are the chances that my expensive peaker plant gets turned on? And what are the chances I make an absolute killing on that one day? And then I can decide whether or not to build this thing. And, and that's how you price risk. Like it's people are taking bets at the end of the day on how hot the summer is going to be. And, it, you know, if we had a 50 straight days of 150 degrees in Texas, like it doesn't matter if you're a capacity market or an energy only market, everything's going to blow up because we, you know, everyone's AC is on. We can't service that. You know, there's constraints that we as humans are like looking into the future, the probability of us hitting a certain demand, you know, we're plus or minus 20% every year. And that's how you make these decisions. So I like, that's a scenario where I just look at it. I'm like, this is what markets are good for. You know, there's like people in a distributed fashion make their own decisions and you price risk appropriately doing yeah. that. Although I will say in PJM, what was really interesting there, and this sort of brings us a little bit back into the DER side, is that you demand response rules there used to be able to bid in. 
all types of demand response, including air conditioners. But now they had to make it more complicated because they have a winter peaking system due to electrification. And demand response is a great way of thinking about it because that's like falls under the category of ancillary grid services revenues. So basically, because of physical constraint, all these kind of constraints around what makes energy markets weird, people came up with like, okay, in these times when the physical infrastructure is constrained, we don't have enough supply, why don't we pay people to just reduce their demand? And that's a demand response program. So some exist at the utility level, like it's just the local distribution grid, and some work at the wholesale level for times when like there's not, you know, a bunch of generators are down for maintenance. It's a really high, hot day. And so they're like, okay, we got to match demand and supply somehow. So we're just going to pay consumers to, to just turn their, low, you know, lower their demand. And, and it turns out, yeah, re- reducing your demand or curtailing your demand, as they say, uh, for that, you know, two hour period on the hottest day of the year is actually a lot cheaper than firing up the 70 year old peaker plant that hasn't run in six months. Right. You suddenly are saying, oh, instead of turning on something really expensive, just turn something off and pay someone for it. So, you know, maybe a a manufacturing plant that really needs to get something done, not going to turn off because it would be very expensive to turn them off. But like someone who can shift when their when their load is being used. This is essentially load participating in capacity markets. Right. And this is what companies called aggregators basically go to the customers and they explain all this complicated stuff to them or don't and just say, hey, if you turn this off. They usually don't. (laughs) Right. The grid's going to call me at some point this year. And if you agree to do X, I'm going to pay you Y. And the customer's like, cool. Yeah, I'll turn my thermostat up. Thanks. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say we first talked about distributed capacity, essentially old school demand response. Frequency regulation then for, for DERs is like the newest thing, right? That That's the most most uh, high resolution way to manage the grid. So that came to DERs very, very much last and in most places isn't even available. And then right in the middle, we have things like DERs bidding into energy markets or or synchronous reserves or things like this that are sort of less granular than FR, much, much more granular than capacity. It's it's crazy. Yeah. So there's a lot. Basically, suffice to say, there's a bunch of things. This is the broad category of ancillary grid services revenues, where customers are getting actual checks for their behind the meter assets for doing certain things at certain times. And there's like market signals that exist around that. I think right? to be technically correct, ancillary services are only things like frequency regulation and synchronous reserves, whereas the other things are just sort of grid let's just say services. grid services yeah. revenues. Yes. I get checks from the utility or the ISO for doing certain things. Yes. Yeah. And the other kind of portion that when you're talking to like a microgrid customer behind the meter asset customer is the category of on bill savings. So one of those pieces is demand charges. So the utility will charge the customer the maximum point of demand they had over the whole month. So if you have a battery and you know that moment's coming, you turn the battery on and you lower the demand charges. That's called demand charge management. That's like the main kind of demand side of on-bill savings. The other side is, okay, well, power is really expensive at 1 p.m. because there's, you know, more demand. And it's really cheap at night because, you know, people are sleeping, their lights are off, there's less demand, uh, power, you know, industries shut down, whatever. 
So if I charge my battery at night and I discharge it during the day, I can make, you know, it's arbit- like simple kind of financial concept of arbitrage. Chunky arbitrage. Yeah. yeah. So that's on the commodity side of the bill, right? But then in capacity markets, there's one other piece of on-bill savings, which is cap tag management. So if you can Love predict it. the one 15-minute interval a year where you're going to get assigned your pro rata portion of paying into the capacity market, you can like totally game it. You turn your HVAC down. I could show you guys some of the load curves of our buildings. It's like ridiculous. We just shut everything off. Yeah, we, we do this as well yeah. in, in reverse kind of with generation, but right. yeah. Right. And it, it turns out it's awesome. You save a ton you of money ton all of year money. round by doing something for like five our, hours a our year. Our estimates are like around 90 to 100 bucks a kilowatt some years. It, like It can get crazy. It yeah. can get pretty crazy for doing it for an hour, you know. This is why and, I like capacity markets. It, well, yeah, it, it, so it pays it, for projects, It makes simple but DER if you think management. about the macro scope of what's happening now, it, it's bad, there's yeah. a, a definite pool of capital that the, uh, you know, the regulators drinking tea in there or, or – smoky cigar room are assigning are assigning how much they're going to pay out to generators me as a battery customer all i'm doing is just dumping more costs onto the next guy who who, the chump who doesn't have a battery right because if i yes those costs are getting recovered somehow or or they're raising your kilowatt hour rates on the distribution side are we sure that's correct right because if, if you're reducing your load during the grid's peak load so you're, you're reducing you're, the reserve margin. You're, you're then reducing the grid's peak load, and therefore um, the grid is still paying its same capacity costs because it's signed up to do that every year. The, the, the next year's capacity auction will be less. If yeah. it were a proper market, it would. But So say the reserve margin for this year is fixed at 35%. The generators are going to like get paid a certain amount. So if they thought the grid was going to peak at 10 gigawatts, and they wanted a 35% reserve margin, they'd, they'd pay, they, they'd raise the capacity price high enough to get 35 gigawatts extra sitting there, right? But if it turns out, because people like you and me are doing stuff, that the grid actually only peaked at 95 gigawatts, if you want a 35% reserve margin on 95 gigawatts, that's not 35 gigawatts of reserve, that's less. So next year, the capacity price will be lower. Right, but what about this year? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a long, slow, dumb way of pricing things, but it it's it basically will... demand response. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just like the bill side of the coin as opposed to the revenue side. But like, I guess the point I'm trying to say is like, you're not just raising everybody's costs; you are reducing the cost of the grid. It's just the slowest, most outrageous process ever. Right. But like, it's not as if I'm like screwing my neighbor. Because I'm reducing my peak load, it's good to reduce your your peak load contribution. <laughs> like it saves the mon- the grid money. Um, but anyway, I'm I'm in agreement. I I guess my only point being, if in that hundred gigawatt example where we have thirty five gigawatts of reserve, um, if uh, if it turns out the peak isn't hundred gigawatts, well, we're still going to have that one hundred thirty five gigawatts of grid capacity and uh, less peak load and therefore they're all going to get paid yeah, less. yeah yeah what isn't happening right now is if i have a battery and i turn it on technically i could actually be exporting into the grid so if my the demand of my building is a megawatt but i have a 1.5 megawatt battery and i turn it on obviously i'm exporting 500 kilowatts and then over an hour that would be 500 kilowatt hours 
into the market. The wholesale markets currently, like FERC is trying to write regulations right now to let that happen. People need to kind of appreciate how different a battery is than a coal plant because it buys and sells, right? We've never seen an asset like this really on the electricity grid. So regulators are like, well, how do we, <laughs> you know, how do we figure this out? And so when people talk about wholesale market participation, the next layer on top of grid services revenue, on-bill savings, the layer that is being built right now is like, I can actually sell in and participate directly in market settlement with this asset. That's like the last piece that I think we need to understand. If you're big enough, you can do it right now. You know, I think Tesla built this huge thing in Australia and they're just like, turn it on when prices are low and turn it on when prices are high because they're bidding directly into the markets, right? What, the the, the so-called big battery? The big battery. That it's, basically it's killed mo- the whole market though? It's mostly doing regulation though. Like it's yeah. It's not really doing much like energy arbitrage. It's, it's mostly, mostly frequency just, regulation yeah. and it basically killed the need for any other battery to be built. Turns out that's a small market. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how <laughs> markets work. And so just to walk through, so there's obviously battery storage or just in general energy storage that can do a lot of different things, right? It can do... It can do generation. It can um, reduce the your demand, right? It can pertain demand response. It can do frequency regulation, right? But then there's other DERs that can also, in theory, provide generation services. And the issue is that to date, they're not allowed to aggregate and bid into right. wholesale markets. Right. And so just to, because another topic we've discussed is like VDER and net metering in New York and this is different, right? So Veter is actually selling into kind of local markets, but we're talking about actual ISO. You're being accepted as a generator when you're a behind the meter battery asset or something like that. And right. you're exporting into the grid, or it could be in front of the meter. Basically right now, if you're building a battery project behind the meter, it's like, what demand response program is there? Can I get frequency regulation? I can always do demand charge management. This is what people call the value stack. So you're finding all these like disparate, which differ market to market ways of paying this asset. And then you're bundling all that together and it, it, it makes the financing or capital you'd put into building that project pencil out where the customer gets savings, the developer gets returns. So there's this very like haphazard way that everything is still put together these days because people say batteries in particular can provide 16 different services to the grid but then a market signal only exists around two of them in some markets and five or six in others so when we think of kind of how fractured the der market is today you know a lot of it's just on we don't have the market signals to actually even if they're providing a service, they need to get paid for it. So that that's where we are, like part of why, you know, batteries are expensive, but also they need to get paid <laughs> for, for the services they're doing. So there's two components that why we're still slow in this market, but things are changing. Market signals are getting more robust. Batteries are getting cheaper. The question is, why don't those markets exist yet? Right. And I, I guess the second question of that is, should those markets exist or should we just be saying we need supply to match demand we're going to change pricing in real time and you respond however you can so i think this 
gets into the energy only versus capacity market debate in a way. So, I mean, first, one of the reasons why the markets don't exist is, you know, until there was net energy metering in 2005, there wasn't any rooftop solar. So there was no, or there was some probably, but, you know, these projects weren't even getting built. And then they're also just so fundamentally different than a coal plant because they're located next to customer load. So they can sell, they can buy, they can offset load. Like there actually is all these things they can do. So we built energy markets around large centralized generating fossil fuel plants, nuclear plants, hydro plants, basically. They bid in at their marginal cost. It's like, okay, well at the wholesale level, solar doesn't have a marginal cost. So do marginal cost markets make sense? So I think whether it's, you know, utility scale solar and wind or behind the meter batteries and backup generators and solar, these are just way different types of assets. We built the market itself around the assets of old and now they're different. So we have to build new markets around those, you know, markets weren't this like natural thing that just existed. We crafted them out of, you know, with regulation and figuring it out like as a collective. So, so now things are different. So we have to change markets around them. The Sunrun deal that Ben talked about is sort of very new because they're getting actually paid through the market for capacity. They're considered an aggregated network of batteries are being paid like a capacity payment through the wholesale market. They're, they're just like a coal plant. Just like a coal plant. <laughs> yeah, wh- They can wh- do all these other things too. Yeah, in, in theory, basically, any DER can get paid or at least create value through either uh, in any of these markets through either demand response or through the on-bill mechanisms of the bill um and it's just are those things actually structured in a way that's like viable so my kind of thesis on capacity markets i think i've you know i've shown there's two parts to this one is the overall disdain I've, i've shown capacity markets where i think sort of arbitrarily you know the way we're pricing risk through them i think it's being done better in texas and then the second part of this is i think capacity markets sort of through that actually disincentivize the deployment of der's or or flexible demand rather which are the very assets and and things we need in energy markets to handle high renewables penetration like the old grid supply, we could turn on and off whenever we wanted. We could ramp up coal plants. We could, you know, nuclear plants or hydro plants. We had really good control over when we could turn them on and off. But demand what was what was we would always have to predict. And like they were flexible and, you know, go up and down and things are things are switching. So now supply is variable. It's weather dependent. But with smart thermostats, backup generators, battery storage, even electric vehicles, all these DERs, which we can turn on and off when we want, it's it's almost like flipping the equation in a way. And so flexible demand, if you want a environment with lots and lots of renewable, lots of wind, lots of solar, which I think is sort of everyone's goal here, like on a per unit of energy basis, they're cheaper and it also meets the climate change goals that that we all have but they're variable. So there's this totally new element of volatility and risk that we have to start thinking about. And I think capacity markets are extremely poorly equipped. Capacity markets are built off of forecasting demand. And we're now saying, well, demand isn't a fixed variable. Demand is flexible. Then 
you don't have a max supply or demand, right? Because they're both changing equations that you can optimize through cost, which requires you to have real-time flexibility. FERC wants to force all assets that bid into capacity markets to remove the subsidies that they receive. And where that gets complicated is that a lot of states who have renewable energy targets have subsidized various renewable energies, including energy efficiency and demand response, because they think it's a valuable thing. And so by removing that, you can actually push certain technologies above more carbon intensive technologies, which is creating this question because this question of does it actually drive down cost because those subsidies have already been paid and it's up to sort of a state's right. So it's sort of a state versus federal well, so regulation. The other question. thing here is each state may have a renewable energy goal, but they participate in regional markets. So all the solar that's going into Massachusetts affect New England ISO and same in New Jersey and PJM. So like FERC now has jurisdiction. Yeah, I think they're essentially saying, yeah, if if you're getting a cent per kilowatt hour of subsidy, then you need to bid into the market a cent higher such right. that we don't have a distorted right. market. Because there's the real driving force behind it is they're like all these renewables are getting subsidized, so they get built. And then the coal and kind of more reliable power plants are the ones that are always on that aren't variable are now getting pushed out of the market. And so they can't get paid their capacity payment. And so they go offline and then, uh oh, we can't match supply and demand because we have all these variable renewable energy resources, right? Basically, Moper is just saying, if you're getting a subsidy and you're bidding into my market at $10 a megawatt or $10 a megawatt hour because you've received that subsidy, I'm gonna make it so that you have a minimum price that you can actually bid into which corrects upwards so now you're at $30 a megawatt because of that you know I take into account the subsidy so now coal's at 25 and they can actually win you know they're trying to make the market competitive because they're worried about reliable resources getting pushed out of the stack so I think what's interesting though I feel like it's more to do with though they're worried about their preferred resources getting well, pushed out yeah, of the stack well yeah so so I like I saw I saw on Twitter somewhere like everyone at FERC hates capacity markets and they just want energy only markets. So there's like the pro energy market faction of FERC just pushing this rule through to what like a drive us towards conspiracy theory. <laughs> but I, I think I mean, so I think you know, there's a lot we, we don't have to get into that side of it, Duncan, like the well, what are the motivations behind this? Because I think that's a whole other conversation. But suffice it to say that it's causing this discussion around should we even use capacity markets? Because one, do you think it makes sense to pay a solar farm when you don't know that it's going to be on for reliability, which is what capacity markets were created for in the first place? No, but I think you could pay a storage. But so, I mean, look at solar and wind in Texas. Like, is there a better renewable market today than Texas? That's tricky, though, because a lot of the renewables are paid via a capacity like function which is all of amazon and apple and facebook okay signing but someone it, that's a bilateral transaction and one of the counterparties is actually taking the energy market risk yeah but i mean like 
the wind farms there because somebody's paying them to exist. Right, but so it's it's, it's an energy still only market, someone's but. taking the risk. Yeah, Apple it's is not taking ISO, the risk. The ISO yeah. is not like we're gonna subs- We're not gonna we're not gonna pay that wind farm. But not like they're they're doing it because they want it to just exist. Like they're not doing it in this like because they're like the the super hedge fund that's like doing commodities trading. Although they're starting to now because they have all these assets. But like the reason they're paying this PPA is because they want it to exist. Right. But from a perspective of are you going to get your investment or not, um, I would think that a renewable energy, like a a wind farm that can't bid into a capacity market is going to be better off in a state like Texas where it can get the $9,000 a megawatt hour than in a state where it's going to be capped at $1,000. Right. Sure. So, so, so that's actually like the, I think the important part of this to get into, right, is that when you pay out capacity payments and you put a price cap on energy, you're basically suppressing volatility. So the swings between, or there can be more, there can be more volatility, but the the swings, which are what a battery cares about, like the peak to valley, are obviously smaller. So you're more poorly incentivizing these flexible demand resources, which I think are absolutely crucial to having a lot of renewables because high renewables environments means more volatility. You need the right price signals around that volatility. If you don't want the market to, I mean, if you don't want the, you know, blackouts to happen, basically like we need to be really smart about pricing risk in high renewables environments because there is a lot of risk there's a lot of volatility and entities like reps need to know how to hedge around it right because it's not just the ability for you know variable renewables to be able to make more money when they can't make a capacity market it's also the ability for fast ramping technologies like storage to be able to make even more money when those renewables go off because a cloud comes by right um, so it's sort of the, the two sides of the coin are better helped when you're actually looking at what's happening on the grid. I think to bring it into sort of the distributed energy resources side, because I think this, Ooh, is, this is my favorite part. Yeah. Is kind of thinking through wholesale markets deal with things at right the regional level, whether that be New York for NISO or the 13 states in PJM. But when you start thinking about DERs and the value they provide, right, it's a lot more granular because you can cause more issues and more benefits within the networks on a distribution level. And so I would argue like wholesale, you know, energy versus capacity markets, sure that's a question, but should we like are wholesale markets enough or do you need to go more granular? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in other kind of episodes we've covered, like, you know, VDER, we should be compensating the locational, you know, this co-location of supply and demand is super important in, in compensating that, right? But as long as you're a distributed energy resource customer that's not off-grid, you're still buying from wholesale markets. But should it all be one market? We could go there for sure. Like just more, <laughs> n- more smaller nodal pricing. Yeah, no, this gets into ISO, DSO, which would be the distributed system operator coordination. Do you want to explain like what VDER New York Rev is trying to do just really briefly? Because we've covered this in other areas, but at the utility level, 
I'm selling solar into the grid. Net metering isn't good enough. Yeah. So right now, right, the whole idea is that with VITA, which is the value of distributed energy resources and New York Rev reforming energy vision, right, the whole idea is New York State is trying to say, how do we appropriately understand the value that resources are bringing not just to the entire grid, but to the specific sort of networks where they are, right? So going back to sort of the idea of balancing supply and demand and how big your pipes are, right? You It's not just enough to have enough supply to match the demand across the state. You need that supply to be able to reach where the demand is. And so when you have, you know, in, in New York State, obviously New York City is a really large portion of the load. Most of our generation comes from upstate or Canada. And so that creates constraints within the city itself that might exist even if we have an extra capacity upstate. And so the question is, how can DERs help provide some of those resources? Right. So you can build more transmission wires right. to bring things from supply to demand, or you can build more DERs right where demand is. And then you don't need the wires. Right. So that that's... You know, Vitor and these things are trying to incentivize that more. Let's get demand and supply closer, so we don't have to rebuild this really aging grid. Like that's basically the promise of DERs, right? And there's and there's mechanisms for that, right? With utilities called non-wires alternatives, where basically if a utility says we need new infrastructure, can we instead of building, you know, a new substation or new distribution wires, can we instead incentivize? DERs in that area to defer or eliminate the need to do those upgrades and is that right. more cost effective and so that's in some ways creating another market which if this conversation is how do you simplify markets the question is if you had distribution level pricing that customers were actually seeing at the distribution level how might that change investment right so I think the part of this conversation that we care about for this sort of for talking about energy market or wholesale markets is if my utility sets up this local market where I have solar and I'm going to, I want to sell it or, you know, through my battery, I can export onto the grid. They're creating a market where like my neighbor can say, Oh, I want that. And there's some supply demand matching locally, but that's also obviously affecting the supply demand equation of the bulk grid. So am I going to end up double dipping and being compensated by the wholesale market too. So once we actually get to lots of DERs, lots of renewables, much more kind of granular grid, we need to start coordinating what happens on the ISO level with what happens at the utility or DSO level. And my thought around is like kind of matches your intuition, which is eventually what is the difference between a DSO and an ISO? It's just one big two-way network. And there's just nodes and we, you know, different market mechanisms to compensate at those nodes, like the same way LMPs currently exist at the wholesale level. So that's probably one potential future. Um, I think the whole exporting into the grid is what drives that conversation, but we're not really there yet. So I think the thing that I wanted to get to is like, obviously the part of this that I really love and think what David energy is doing and serving is actually part of this ISO to DER coordination problem. And it's done through the commodity portion of a customer's bill. So like we, we could go down the, yeah, the so, and New York rabbit hole a lot, but I, w I wanted to like bring it back to 
wholesale markets, I guess. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, there's this potential world in the future where distribution and wholesale markets either converge or have this really close coordination and customers are rewarded in that way, but we're not there yet. Yeah. So we're coming back a bit. And so I think there's ways that we can think through what is currently possible. Right. Let's just, let's just imagine Vitor fails, right? There's no great way to export. I know it's not, it's just, let's just forget it exists for a second. It's put in a box for now. Right. So flexible demand is still super valuable and DERs create it. And so one of the ways, like the part of that, that we're obsessed with is if I'm a retail electricity provider and I think markets are getting more volatile because more and more solar and wind are coming online at the wholesale level, if I still want to offer a customer fixed price contract, I need to find a way to like, whether it's, you know, it's going to volatility makes things super weird at the wholesale level energy traders, like all the things that they do to make this work, we're entering a new environment. So our answer to that question is let's aggregate a bunch of flexible demand so that when prices are high, because all the solar has suddenly gone offline or the wind or like wind, it's not a windy day. So we're turning on all these gas peaker plants or something. We can turn on behind the meter assets, flexible demand to lower our customers demand base. And we can make money doing that because we're not as exposed to those high prices now as other reps. So like the value is in how much we can aggregate within that network. So I think something that's missing in the DER world is currently what reps do when they come upon a customer with a behind the meter with a battery. And like Duncan, you've probably seen this a lot, is they say, okay, great. You want to turn that battery on at night to charge it and then discharge it during the day when prices are high. So here's your index contract, meaning you're taking the market risk all hours of the day, all year, you're exposed to energy prices going up and down. And the customer's like, wait, I don't want to do that. So then the rep's like, great, well, here is seven cents a kilowatt hour. Here's a fixed price contract. And then the customer's like, well, wait, when do I, can I turn my battery on at night still and, you know, do arbitrage? They're like, no. So we're coming in and being like, well, we're the rep and we're controlling that battery. So we're going to offer you six cents a kilowatt hour, some, you know, lower fixed price contract where you get some portion of the savings. And then when there are kind of volatility events, you know, price spikes, we can actually, we like those, right? So when I look at capacity markets, I'm like, we need to encourage our ability to recover and make money via flexible demand in the form of volatility and price spikes. Capacity markets are really bad in my mind doing that. So yes, with that battery, you can turn it on during the ICAP event. Right now it's happening in New York markets as capacity tags are going way up and supply rates are coming way down. And I don't think that market functions for very long when you have lots of solar and lots of wind. I I see the argument why energy only markets are, are sort of like technically superior. And if somebody forced me to choose one or the other, I'd choose energy only. Um, With that said, we can still build batteries in capacity markets, right? Like yeah. you, you just pay them to exist. And then on the day to day, they clear less. Right. But like they ultimately get the same amount of money and they ultimately do the same job of balancing the grid. But like, I don't see why a 50% VRE grid can't exist in a grid that has capacities. Markets. Yeah. You're probably, you're probably right. It just like, ultimately, like extent. I think the cost of energy to the end user will be slightly higher. 
because it's a worse pricing. Right. But there's also like, I think the other part of this is that renewables drive the need for real-time market operation. So we settle on 15-minute intervals because we don't need anything more granular currently because it's just like a spinning magnet. And we literally call a coal plant like, hey, Bill, can you ramp up your power plant? Because we're expecting more demand in an hour. Right. And but we it's still like, do that like, with our largest demand response customers too, right? Like some yeah, it's like a call, it's a phone call, but big industrials, you call them. Yeah, but what what happens when like I forget what the weather system is called, but they're these really weird like thunderstorms that just pop up out of nowhere, like kind of you you can't predict them in meteorology, and they blot out like five gigawatts of solar or so, something like that, and now within half a second like things are are going really wrong on a feeder like you need due to the variability of the weather you need real-time market operation so you'd want to have a battery be able to turn on at that point in time or a thermostat to turn down like you'd want to be able to pay in real time i don't understand how a capacity market incentivizes like it's just not a good way of doing it like paying this thing yearly like, I mean, why wouldn't you just pay it to turn on then? Like, there's all it's so complicated. Well, this stuff. It, presuming it exists, presuming it exists, right? That's and that's exactly that's exactly right. the right question to ask. Because the question is basically like, when that one feeder is down, and we're talking about we need a battery. Assume it we're presumably that's because we have nothing else that's doing that job. How'd that battery get there? Right. So you're because basically last saying... time it went badly. <laughs> like, like that's how it has to work in energy only, right? Like the last time this happened. Prices hit $9,000 and we all freaked out and there was a brownout. And now we install a battery, presuming that's going to happen again. The purpose of the capacity market is to make sure the battery's there in the first place and never have that situation. Now, that might be insanely conservative, but that's the idea, right? Maybe you end up with like three batteries in different areas in case. And that's your, you know, PJM example, your 30% overage. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm changing my tune on this, but... Yes, there's other ways to like make this all work. I just like think that energy only markets are like a way more elegant way of doing it. Yeah. And and that's why like the Sunrun deal is cool because these batteries are getting capacity payments theoretically, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and they get well and here actually here's the here's the thing. So they're they're the deal is executed on on the capacity cost or payment or whatever revenue. Um but when they respond, they get the energy price as well in that moment in time. Um, so it's it, it, it it's not as if it's like all being abstracted into the capacity. They're still getting that peak energy price as well. It's just lower than it otherwise would have been because, you know, they're paid to exist. I, I, I get your guys' position that, yes, this can still be done through a capacity market. So... We kind of, I wanted to open up the conversation around what does a high renewables energy market, a high renewable penetration energy market look like as a capacity market? Like how how do you see that kind of working? So, I mean, I think essentially it, it wouldn't be much different than it is today, except rather than building combined cycle plants via capacity, uh, via the capacity market, we'll be building storage via the capacity market. Does solar and wind get compensated with capacity payments? Well, so I think currently they perhaps do to some extent, but it's it's very low. Um, but I think the idea is it's still no different than the way um, energy-only markets would eventually get more 
variable renewables built, which is uh, batteries will come on the grid, they'll uh, raise costs, uh, raise the the clearing price when it's low and decrease it when it's high. Um, Even if you build the storage via a capacity market and that volatility is lower, it will still act. It won't just choose to sit there and do nothing. It will still balance the market to the extent it can. Um, and then we'll still be able to then build that marginal unit of solar or wind. And maybe with that, too, if you were to co-locate a plant, right, where you were wanting to build a solar plant, but you knew that you'd get a low capacity payment and in order to increase that, you built storage at the site? Yeah, it would do It would do both functions for you, right? It would then get you a, a capacity payment and it would also then you have this storage now so you can optimize, you know, when you're selling your variable renewables into the grid. Um, so I, I think it still works out the same, basically. It just preempts the price signal, right? Like that's the center of the capacity markets are basically just like we're going to decide what we need. Um, so it, it's just still the same fundamental, you know, problem or or not problem, I guess, depending on how you see it. But I, it, it would happen, I think. You know, we'd still get yeah, there. I... It just would probably be a little more costly. There's going to be more volatility from a real-time delivery of energy because of renewables. So instead of kind of running away from that through capacity payments, which essentially like suppress that and price caps that suppress that volatility, we actually need to embrace it. I know that's kind of hand wavy, but what I suspect is that what you just described and, and you see even seem to kind of suspect it too in saying that energy would probably be a bit pricier. Like, yeah, you could do it, but it's just not just how is that the best way of doing it? Like if if output is variable on a resource, like let the price signal be variable on it, too. And to the extent that it should be, because we're ultimately like matching supply and demand in real time and capacity is like kind of an artifice. It's basically the same fundamental problem, which is, you know, whether it's pre renewables or post renewables, grids that have capacity markets have people in a room presume to know what the grid needs, right? And, and that and, was more... And energy-only markets just sort of let it happen. Or, or as you said, get freaky with it. <laughs> um, I did say that during, yeah, the, pizza during the pizza break. We need to just let things get freaky. <laughs> Perhaps in a post-renewables world, like that's enunciated, and the downsides of that then are enunciated, but it would still function. You, you could do it, right? It, it's just... Yeah, I agree. It's probably suboptimal. Right, because it doesn't allow for generators to really give what they're good at, right? So historically, generation plants weren't really built to ramp up and down super quickly, right? You needed maybe a couple of your peaker plants that could come online quickly. But for the most part, you knew how supply was changing, right? So demand was what you had to watch. But when you have to watch both supply and demand it becomes inherently more volatile. And if you want to reward both, you know, variable renewables and non-variable renewables, you need to be able to have something that prices that volatility effectively. Otherwise, there's not as much of an incentive to get in the game. I think especially for something like flexible demand, because what is a capacity payment for flexible demand? Like it definitely does exist, but it is often discounted for the fact that um, a lot of regulators don't always buy that it will be there consistently. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, people don't um, show up when they okay, say Duncan, they're going to show you, up. Is uh, DR bankable? By project financiers? Hell no. Neither are merchant revenues for the most part, other than like, you know, for big utility scale. But in, in the DER's world, 
the nobody banks merchant arbitrage or anything. Yeah, that's either. true. That's you know, true. Like right. all, yeah. all the, the only thing they, had the only thing they bank is their annuity from the customer, right? Like that's all <laughs> they care about, right? That, or sorry, PPA rate. Um, so, yeah, I I think you can have a capacity payment for flexible demand. It's called you know paying your two hundred kW chiller, you know X dollars per year to be willing to turn off a couple hours per year right but like are they more likely to turn off if the price is nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour than one thousand i because like you, i stress certain. the real time know. the yeah. real time instantaneous aspect of this right. like it is definitely more built towards energy markets i love how, what ben said capacity markets are a call option on energy resources yeah and so like that call option you should be able to call it kind of in real time like you can't yeah. call a solar farm like or we're just mispricing the call option by like deciding this in a room with a bunch of regulators yeah no i, I that part i agree with wholly yeah, okay. yeah just deciding how much power we need is weird colleen nailed it on the head where we just have to like respect that capacity markets were invented in this world where generation was very predictable so we're like, okay, let's just pay them to be there because we know they can turn on and off. So that assumption is gone. So now it, it, it's just harder to justify capacity markets in, in my mind. Right. And I think it's interesting too to think of how we achieve like renewable energy goals too, right, with capacity markets because the reality is to reach 100% renewable, we're going to have to overbuild a lot in the near term because we're going to have to build faster than we're retiring. And so in an energy-only market there's benefit to that, right? Because if you can undercut the next marginal price, I mean, there's benefit that's up to a point because if you get your marginal price is too low, but I don't think we need to go there. Wait, today. yeah, wait, if we have way oversupply, doesn't that just mean energy prices will go to nothing and then yeah. we won't build anything? That's Chile. Yeah, but are we just going to way overpay capacity payments to overbuild renewables? I think we have to. If we, if we because we don't need any more power right are now. Are we getting back to nationalizing the grid? And, unless we just, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to. <laughs> don't, Say it, Duncan. Don't get me there. No, don't get me there. Say so it. I, no, I have a different crazy idea that's not nationalizing okay, the grid. Okay, we're going to end on here, one of Duncan's crazy ideas. Here's my modest proposal that I think uh, maybe is, is the compromise. If capacity payments are to exist, they should exclusively exist for generators that add resilience to the system so like i think we shouldn't be giving combined cycle gas turbines capacity payments we should be giving backup generators capacity payments because that's the only thing that actually is oh, like functions like that of reliability yeah like it, it's the only thing where it's like it literally never turns on you just have it because you want it there right <laughs> like it's literally it actually adds value value to the system whereas like with the CCGT, it's like, no, we're just like paying you a bunch up front and then you like get to make a little money every day too, just less than you otherwise would have if you made all your money every little bit every day. Like backup generators are the only thing that it actually meant makes sense to pay to exist because you never know if you're going to ever need them. Well, there's <laughs> there's your bias because you, you build microgrids. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But like I think that's actually like a fair point, right? Duncan, are you and I just ruthless capitalists who want markets <laughs> to reform around our business models? Well, yeah, I build microgrids because they're necessary for humanity. I know. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I'm with you. But th th I think that's actually a format where a capacity payment is doing something no other market mechanism could effectively do. 
you're essentially, yeah, resilience is yeah. essentially a form of insurance, right? And the whole point of insurance is that it's something that you buy for no purpose other than the, I really hope I never need there. this, yeah. but if I do need this, I'm glad I have it. And frankly, we don't want people's diesel generators running all the time in energy markets, right? Like we want them to just be there. So right. that, that would be my humble let, let's 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 take the capacity market and just break it and make it only for backup generators. Okay. Colleen, do you have a what's your proposal? My proposal, unsurprisingly, just going to all our biases tonight, is using blockchain to coordinate distribution <laughs> and wholesale level markets. So real time energy only markets. <laughs> real time energy only nice. coordinated distribution wholesale markets. Or as I call it, just let things get freaky. Let things get freaky. Let them get volatile. It will be okay, people. Well, that's a wrap for today. Thanks again for listening and to Ben for giving a killer presentation, for educating us, and for being the man overall. If you enjoyed it, head on over to DERtaskforce.com to sign up for our newsletter and keep in the loop. If you'd like to continue the conversation and take a deeper dive into the topics covered today, please join our Slack channel that's listed on our website or tweet at us at DER underscore task underscore force. We'll see you next time. And until then, stay freaky.